Psalm 18. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shale entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High utters his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light up my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. 
The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. Amen. What makes a great song? Nathan and I were talking about music. What makes a great rock song on the drive to his bike race yesterday? We talked about layers of complexity, about changing time signatures to create interest, about loops and layering and tension and release. When it comes to lyrics, a great song usually has a great subject, an interesting character, compelling story, a timeless truth, or simply a humorous or shared observation. And for music and lyric, we agreed that attitude matters. The artist cannot think too highly of himself. Serious things should be taken seriously. Unserious things must not be. The artist must recognize the relative worthiness of her subject matter. What we have in Psalm 18 is a great rock song. Not rock and roll, of course. You can sing these words to any appropriate tune you like. It's a great song about a great rock, the rock of ages. So the subject is certainly worthy, and the artist has the appropriate attitude. Attitudes, plural, really, for there are several worth noting, and that's what I'd like to draw our attention to this morning. As we work through the content of the psalm, let's consider carefully the several attitudes of David, how they relate to the subject, and how they can guide us in the response to life in Christ that we're singing every day. Psalm 17, remember, was a lament. Psalm 18 has notes of lament, but they serve a different purpose because this is a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a long psalm. You heard that. It's the longest yet. It has the second longest title in the whole Psalter. And it's long because it isn't a psalm about one event. It's about a lifetime of them. Near the end of his life, David is thinking about all the times that God has intervened in his distress. And he writes a song of thanksgiving to God. You read that song here and also in 2 Samuel 22, the same song. David knew what it was to have enemies and to live through dangerous and uncertain circumstances. And David knew what it was to have God burst forth in deliverance. And the song is the summary of those events. It's the response to those events. It's the song of a grateful heart 
of a man who experienced those events firsthand. And that attitude, thanksgiving, is where the psalm begins. You all know I'm a geek and love musicals, and in musicals, the opening song is the overture, and it includes the melodic themes of the other key songs in the rest of the show. The first three verses of Psalm 18 are kind of an overture of the praise that you'll find in the rest of the psalm. Here, David describes God as powerful and also personal. God is his strength, his fortress, his deliverer, his shield, his stronghold. It's a lot of metaphors, and they fall broadly into two categories. One is God as David's power for victory, strength, shield, horn of salvation. The other category is God as David's help in time of need, fortress, deliverer, stronghold. David is not generically thankful for God in some distant and abstract way. He's thankful for the specific ways that God has come to his aid, the specific ways he's seen God present himself in power, and in his song, he remembers them all. Don't you remember the really great things that people have done for you? When someone asks me, what is the the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? I don't have to think long to remember. I have to think long to figure out how to, to rank them. People have done wonderful things for me in my life, and I, I remember many of them. And David, near the end of his life, is thinking back of what God has done for him. And he remembers he's thankful. Are we personally and specifically thankful? Not just abstractly so, oh yes, I'm grateful to God. No, no. Does the song of your life praise God as strength and have a memory to tie it back to? As shield and have a recollection of that moment where God was your defender when no one else could be? As fortress as deliverer in our daily lives when we're talking to others or even talking to ourselves is this the kind of song we're singing the most well-known of these metaphors it's stated here and it's repeated all throughout this psalm is God as David's rock and he uses that metaphor in several different ways some of which are not very obvious to us Kids, this is because the Israelites had a lot of experience in the desert, and most of us have probably not spent much time in the desert. It's felt like it this summer, but it's not. In the desert, after the spring rains come, there's this tiny window of time in the ancient Near East where you could actually see green stuff coming out of the ground. Right after the rains finish, you would actually see new growth. And then... Before long, with the blistering sun and the wind blowing the sand all over, within weeks it would all be scorched and covered up again. Except where there were large rocks. 
There's always one side of the rock in the desert where there was shade and where there was protection from the wind. And under the protection of that rock and the shadow of the rock, there was security and life. A little, a little oasis of green would survive there to prove it. And David thinks about God as his, his rock, his, his oasis, his, his shelter from life's storms. Of course, David would also think about the mountainous rocks, the ones that he used to hide from Saul and his pursuers. One historian said, David knew every cranny, crack, and secret hiding place in the vast rocky wilderness. When he fled to the rocks, he knew he'd be safe in their protection. And from the height of some great rock, David could look down into the canyon below and watch as his enemies pursued him hopelessly. The New Testament uses the metaphor of rock to highlight the importance of having a solid foundation. You build your life on the rock and not the sand. Unlike the things of earth that unbelievers put their trust in, things that can reel and rock, shaking the foundations beneath them, God's faithfulness is a rock-solid foundation for David. It can never fail That leads into the second section of the psalm. That's verses 4 through 6, where David calls upon the Lord. It's exactly what we saw in Psalm 17. David knows where to go in times of trouble. He goes to God in prayer. And he does so with an attitude of happy humility. He's humble because it's clear his circumstances are too big for him. He says that right out. I couldn't do this. Look at the metaphors he uses in verses 4 and 5. They can be paraphrased as being bound like a criminal for execution, being overwhelmed like a shipwrecked sailor, surrounded and standing at bay like a hunted stag, or captured in a net like a trembling bird. Every route of escape is closed. I mean, you felt that way before. I once heard Satan called the master of blockades. He makes you feel trapped, hemmed in, and he'll use sorrow or pride or guilt or selfishness or whatever he can to make you feel trapped and helpless. David felt that way. But one option always Remains. There's one door that Satan can never close to us. So rather than give in to the fear and overwhelm in times of trouble, David calls out to the Lord in prayer. And it takes such humility. To call out to God in prayer is an admission that whatever it is, we can't do it ourselves. We need God's help. We need him to provide the means of our salvation. We need him to provide the power to move forward. We need him to change us. We need him to forgive us. We need him to accept us and to make us whole. Prayer is the wondrously humble admission that we need God. And I say that David's attitude is happy humility 
Because in the verses just before this, he's praising God for his track record of deliverance. That is, when David cries out to God, he does so in confidence and gratitude for the mercies that God has already shown him. They're right on his tongue. He just spoke of them. He's not calling out to God simply as one who thinks God could save him. He's calling out to God as one who already knows and remembers all the times that God has. Next, he turns to God's response. And his attitude here is confidence. For good reason, verses 7 through 15 show the lengths that God will go to and the resources he will use to save and vindicate his people. This is so counterpredictable for us. We spend so much time thinking in our, our private darkest moments how far we've run from God and that we are, we are stretching the limits of what God is willing to do to come and to pull us back. We, we think we've nearly overwhelmed the scales with our sin that he would possibly be willing or able to forgive. We, we think we've really taken God to the max of what he would do to save us. And then do you read these verses? <laughs> In his anger at sin and injustice against us, God comes down from heaven to do battle with his enemies. All of creation is available to him for his purposes. And the language David uses here mirrors that of other Old Testament passages when God shows himself powerful to save his people. David can't handle his foes. God doesn't break a sweat. As David turns to God in prayer, the tables turn on those who seek evil against him. And so from his experience, David is unreservedly confident that God will supply what he needs. Unreservedly confident. When we pray, is that how we would describe our confidence in God? Let me read you this. David was a king and a military commander, so he needed strength for and victory in battle. We usually do not need these things. But the principle holds true for us anyway, since whatever we need, God, the same God, provides it. Is it wisdom? Do you need wisdom? God is the source of wisdom. And we're told to pray for it. We're told if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. Is it peace in the midst of trouble? Are you struggling this morning with peace of mind and spirit because of your circumstances? God is the source of peace. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Is it love? Joy? Patience. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul wrote, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Wise people have found this to be true and therefore turn to God for their needs. Is that what we're doing? Okay, but... How is David so confident that God will help him? That God can help is one thing, but that God would desire to help 
me. That's the section beginning in verse 20 where David explains why God delivered him. Why is he confident in God's deliverance? And in a way, it's because of this attitude, the peace of a clean conscience. David walks by faith with God and therefore knows he's a friend with God. When we walk our own way, we put ourselves at great risk. We abandon the peace of a clean conscience. But David walks with God. Not perfectly, of course. He's still a sinner. But he's a sinner who rests in God for forgiveness and acceptance. A sinner who leans on God for the power of new obedience. Satan is the great accuser. And Christians are wise not to listen to him. But also wise is to give Satan less ammunition to work with. When we live selfishly, his accusations of our condemnation are false. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But when we live selfishly, his accusations of our selfishness are true. And they can strike at the peace of conscience we could have. When we give in to lusts and greed and anger, Satan is wrong that such things separate us from the love of God in Christ. Craig read so this morning. But he's correct that we're not walking with Christ and we miss out on the peace of a clean conscience. Through obedience, that peace is available to us. And David, the man after God's own heart, he doesn't consider himself to be in a class of one. Verse 25, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. He's saying that those who walk with God by faith, all who walk with God by faith, can sing their song with the peace of a clean conscience the way he does. And those who do not, verses 26 and 27, cannot. Now, here we find the psalm's structure to be what scholars call chiastic. If the first parts were A, B, C, the rest of the psalm will be C, B, A. David's going to repeat all the points he's made so far in the opposite order so that he ends the psalm where he began. But they aren't exact repeats. The next section takes the same principle he just sang about, and it broadens it to a more universal application. David repeats the story of his deliverance, but this time he tells it from his own point of view, whereas before he told it from the perspective of heaven. He still praises God, again with that attitude of confidence that God has equipped him for battle. Verse 32, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. It's the same song. It's a different verse that God has given him all that he needs for offense and for defense. That God has equipped him from head to toe. That God has provided him with the power to repel and the power to conquer as God sees fit. And as we move through the second sections for each of these attitudes, we also begin to notice something else. As one teacher put it, the content of Psalm 18 
is too big and too full to refer only to David. Psalm 18 is like a a river that overflows its banks. The psalm overflows the historical events of David's life. There's simply more here than was true of David himself. Yes, God was faithful to King David. But like in many of the kingship psalms, present within Psalm 18 is also the promise that God would be faithful to and through a greater David, Jesus the Christ. In fact, in Romans 15, the Apostle Paul quotes this psalm as evidence that Jesus was the Christ for both Jew and Gentile. And if you go back through the psalm with that lens, it makes sense. Because after all, even more than David, Jesus was the righteous one who was attacked and persecuted by evil and the evil one, and yet who finally triumphed in resurrection power. The sense of joy and euphoria in Psalm 18 is even greater because the victory of Jesus is bursting through the seams. David himself wants us to realize that he's writing about something more than just his own victories. In the late 1700s, the preacher Augustus Toplady was walking along a dirt road and a violent storm suddenly popped up. Looking around for shelter, he saw a gap in a large boulder. While waiting for the storm to pass, he reflected on a sermon that he'd heard recently about how God hears the humble pleas of his people for refuge. And he looked around at the, at the rock cleft that he's now standing in that's providing him shelter, and he is filled with thankfulness to God. Someone had been there previously in that rock Maybe for the same purpose, and they dropped a playing card, which Toplady picked up from the ground to use as scrap paper. And he began to write, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And that's why when you sing that hymn, you can get a sense of the love for God in the hymn writer's heart. I was thinking that this morning as Craig read that passage from Romans. As you heard that glorious hymn, didn't you get a sense of the love in Paul's heart for Christ? That same attitude of love is how Psalm 18 begins and ends. It's right there in verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. And the attitude is woven all throughout the closing stanza as well. You want to sing like this. You have to love God. I mean with the deepest kind of love, not not simply awareness of the events of Jesus' passion, not simply uh, mental doctrinal agreement on the need for holiness. No, you've got to love God. I heard another preacher call love of God the great dividing line that runs through humanity. It's the unmistakable mark of God's people. Do you love God? 
David did. And so he wrote a great rock song. A song about a great subject. A song from the right attitudes and state of mind. All the attitudes I described, yes, but ultimately the attitude of love for God. It's love of God that made him thankful and happy and humble, confident and at peace. As David drew near to the end of his life, the song he wrote was a reflection on that love and the God who was worthy of it. So this morning I'd ask you, why wait? You have in Christ today all that David ever had and more. Why wait to write the song? If your attitude is love for God, then write a great rock song. And we will all be blessed to hear it.